Chapter 7 The full story so far as deciphered will shortly appear in an official bulletin of the Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless rambling way, myth or otherwise. The sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent, lifeless earth out of cosmic space. Their coming and the coming of many other alien entities, such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seem able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told to me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, even though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of these sculptures suggested they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets but had proceeded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments, except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea at first for food and later for other purposes. And they first created Earth life, using available substances according to long-known methods. The more elaborate experiments came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses, capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs, under hypnotic influence, and thereby forming ideal slaves, to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without a doubt what Abdul Azared whispered about as the Shagaths in his frightful Necronomicon, though even the mad Arab had not hinted at any existed on Earth except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms of bread, a good supply of shogos, they allowed other cell groups to develop into other forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes. Extirpating any of those presents became troublesome. With the aid of the shogos whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights, the small low cities under the sea grew to vast imposing labyrinths of stone not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, the adaptable old ones had lived much on land and other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied in the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities, including what that those Aeon dead corridors we were even then traversing. We were impressed by the curious coincidence, which we have not yet tried to explain, even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings, which in an actual city around us had of course been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the boss reliefs and shoot vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate 
finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes and tiers of thin horizontal scalp discs, capping cylindrical shafts. This was exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage cast by a dead city once such skyline features had been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness as we first approached Four Lakes' ill-fated camp. Of the life of the old ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes and ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in unique and unusual way. The writing accomplished with a stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lower down in the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pieced out their vision with obscure, special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads. Senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence which the boss reliefs could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet. Occasionally, they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of fan-like folding wings. On land, they locally used pseudo-feet, but now and then flew to great heights over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong, and accurate in muscular nervous coordination, ensuring utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressures of the deepest sea bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed fact that they covered their vertically inhumed dead with five-pointed inscribed mounds, set up thoughts and Danforth in me, which made fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beings multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable pteridophytes, as Lake had suspected but owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity, the consequent lack of replacement need, they did not encourage large-scale development of new prothali, except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residents, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though able, like vegetables, to derive nourishment from inorganic substances, they vastly preferred organic and especially animal food. They ate uncooked marine life under the sea, but cooked their viands on land. 
They hunted game and raised meat herds, slaughtering with sharp weapons whose odd marks on certain fossil bones our expedition had noted. They resisted all ordinary temperatures marvelously, and their natural state could live on water down to freezing. When the great chill of the Pleistocene grew on, however, nearly a million years ago, the land dwellers had to resort to special measures including artificial heating, until at last the deadly cold appeared to have driven them back into the sea. For their prehistoric flights through cosmic space, legend said they had absorbed certain chemicals and became almost independent of eating, breathing, or heat conditions. But by the time of the great cold, they had lost track of the method. In any case, they could not have prolonged the artificial state indefinitely without harm. Being non-pairing and semi-vegetable in structure, the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space utility. And as we deduce from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association and furnishing their homes, they kept everything in the center of the large rooms, leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment. Lighting, in the case of the land inhabitants, was accomplished by a device probably electrochemical in nature. Both on land and underwater, they used curious tables, chairs, and couches like cylindrical frames, for they rested and slept upright with fold-down tentacles, and racks for the hinged set of dotted surfaces forming their books. Government was evidently complex and probably socialistic, though no certainties in this regard could be deduced from the sculptures we saw. There was extensive commerce, both local and between different cities, certain small flat counters, five-pointed and inscribed, serving as money. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Though the culture was mainly urban, some agricultural, and much stock raising existed. Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent, but permanent migration seemed relatively rare for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. For personal locomotion, no external aid was used, since the land, air, and water movement, alike the old ones, seemed to possess excessively vast capacities for speed. Loads, however, were drawn by beasts of burden, shogoths under the sea, and curious variety of primitive vertebrates in the later years of land existence. These vertebrates, as well as an affinity of other life forms, animal and vegetable, marine, terrestrial, and aerial, were the products of unguided evolution acting on life cells, made by the old ones, but escaping beyond their radius of attention. They had been suffered to develop unchecked because they had not come in conflict with the dominant beings. Bothersome forms, of course, were mechanically exterminated, but it interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures, a shambling primitive mammal, used sometimes for food and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by the land dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowing were unmistakable. In the building of land cities, the huge stone blocks of the high towers were generally lifted by vast winged pterodactyls of a species heretofore unknown to paleontology. 
The persistence with which the old one survived various geologic changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seemed to have remained beyond the Archaean Age, there was no interruption in their civilization or the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean, and it was likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then underwater, and some with stone cities scattered farther and farther from the Antarctic as aeons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole, where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements, though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps which display this landmass as cracking and drifting and setting certain detached parts northward uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wagner, and Jolie. With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to the fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity with precipitated monstrous war, which for a time drove the Old Ones wholly back to the sea, a colossal blow in the view of the increasing land settlements. Later, peace was made, and the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn, whilst the Old Ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic. For this region, a first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the Old One's civilization, and all the discoverable cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then, suddenly, the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Relay and all the cosmic octopi, so that the Old Ones were again supreme on the planet, except for one shadowy fear, about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later stage, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe. Hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Pavodi's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady tread down the ages was from water to land of movement, encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing the Shogoths, upon which successful sea life depended. With the march of time, as the sculptures sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost so that the old ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land, the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the shogoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestion of the old ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs, but now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. They had, it seemed, developed a semi-stable brain, 
whose separate and occasionally stubborn volition echoed the will of the old ones without always obeying it. Sculptured images of these shogas filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of viscous jelly, which looked like an agglination of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestions. They seem to have become peculiarly intractable towards the middle of the Permian Age, perhaps 150 million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the marine old ones. Pictures of this war, and of the headless, slime-coated fashion in which some of the Shogoths typically left their slain victims, held a marvelously fearsome quality, despite the intervening abyss of untold ages. The Old Ones had used curious weapons of molecular disturbance against the rebel entities, and in the end had achieved a complete victory. Thereafter, the sculptures shewed a period in which Shogoths were tamed and broken by armed Old Ones, as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. Though during the rebellion, the Shogoths had shewn an ability to live out of water, this transition was not encouraged, since their usefulness on land would have hardly been commiserate with the trouble of their management. During the Jurassic Age, the Old Ones met fresh adversity in the form of new invasion from outer space, this time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures from a planet identifiable as the remote and recently discovered Pluto. These creatures, undoubtedly, the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the north, are remembered in the Himalayas as the Migo, or Abominable Snowmen. To fight these beings, the Old Ones attempted for the first time in the terrain advent to sally forth again to the planetary ether. But despite all traditional preparations, found it no longer possible to leave Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the race. In the end, the Migo drove out the Old Ones out of all the northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little, the slow retreat of the Elder Race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. It was curious to note from the pictured battles that both the Cthulhu spawn and the Migo seem to have been composed of matter more widely different from that which we know was the substance of the Old Ones. They were able to undergo transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries, and seemed therefore to have originally come from even remoter gulfs of cosmic space. The Old Ones, but for their abnormal toughness and peculiar vital properties, were strictly material, and must have had their absolute origin within the known space-time continuum, whereas the first sources of other beings can only be guessed at with bated breaths. All this, of course, assuming that the non-terrestrial linkages in the anomalies ascribed to the invading foes are not purely mythology. Conceivably, the Old Ones might have invented cosmic framework to account for their occasional defeats, since the historical interest and pride obviously formed their chief psychological element. It is significant that their annals fail to mention many advanced and potent races of beings whose mighty cultures and towering cities figure persistently in certain obscure legends. 
maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of a hundred million or more years ago displayed significant rifts and chasms, destined later to separate Africa from the once continuous realms of Europe, then Volusia of hellish primal legend, Asia and the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Other charts, and most significantly one with connection with the founding 50 million years ago of the vast dead city around us, shewed all the present continents well differentiated. And in the largest discoverable specimen, dating perhaps from the Pliocene age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Gramland. In the carnivorous map, the whole globe, ocean floor, and rifted landmass alike bore symbols of the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except in the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America, nor any ocean cities north of the 15th parallel of South Latitude. Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for the study of coastlines, probably made during the long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of the cities through the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom, and other natural causes was a matter of common record, and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race built early in the Cretaceous Age, after a titanic earth-buckling and obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first old ones had settled on a primal sea bottom in the new city, many of whose features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretched fully in a hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey. There were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones, forming part of the first sea-bottom city, which were thrust up into light after long epochs in the course of the general crumbling of strata. Chapter 8 Naturally, Danforth and I studied with a special interest and a peculiarly personal sense of awe, everything pertaining to the immediate district in which we were. Of this local material, there was naturally a vast abundance, and on the tangled ground level of the city we were lucky enough to find a house of very late date whose walls, though somewhat damaged by neighboring rift, contained sculptures of decadent workmanship carrying the story of the region much beyond the period of the Pliocene map, once we derived our last general glimpse of the pre-human world. This was the last place we examined in detail, since what we found there gave us fresh, immediate objective. Certainly, we were in one of the strangest, weirdest, and most terrible of all the corners of Earth's globe. Of all existing lands, it was infinitely the most ancient, and the conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare plateau of Lang, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. The great mountain chain was tremendously long, starting a low range at Lutopold Land on the coast of Weddell Sea and virtually crossing the entire continent. 
The real high part stretched in a mighty arc from the latitude 82 degrees east, longitude 60 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees east, longitude 150 degrees. With this concave side towards our camp and its seaward end in the region, that long ice-locked coast, whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. Yet even more monstrous exaggerations of nature seemed disturbingly close at hand. Now, I've said that these peaks are higher than the Himalayas, but the sculpture forbid me to say that they are Earth's highest. That grim honor is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to record at all, whilst others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was a part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters, after the earth had flung off the moon, and the old ones have seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely namelessly evil. Cities built there had crumbled long before their time, and had been found suddenly deserted. Then, when the first great earth-buckling had convulsed the region in the Comanchean Age, a frightful line of peaks had shot up suddenly amidst the most appalling din and chaos, and earth had received their loftiest and most terrible mountains. These aboard things must have been over 40,000 feet high, radically faster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. They extended, it appeared, from about latitude 77 degrees east, longitude 7 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees east, to longitude 100 degrees, less than 300 miles away from the dead city, so that we would have spied their dreaded summits in the dim western distance, had it not been for the vague opalescent haze. Their northern end must likewise be visible from the long Antarctic Circle coastline at Queen Mary Land. Some of the old ones in the decadent days had made strange prayers to those mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay beyond. No human eye had ever seen them, and as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings, I prayed that none ever might. There were protecting hills along the coast beyond them. Queen Mary and Kaiser Wilhelm lands, and I thank heaven no one has been able to land and climb those hills. I'm not as skeptical about old tales and fears as I used to be, and I do not laugh now at the pre-human sculpture's notions that lightning paws meaningfully now, and then at each of the brooding crusts that an unexplained glow shone from one of the terrible pinnacles all through the long polar night. There may be a real and very monstrous meaning in the old narcotic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste. But the terrain close at hand was hardly less strange, even if less namelessly accursed. Soon after the founding of the city, the great mountain range became the seat of the principal temples, and many carvings shewed what grotesque and fantastic towers had pierced the skies, where now we saw only the curiously clinging cubes and ramparts. In the course of ages, the caves had appeared, and had been shaped into adjuncts of the temples. With the advance of still later epochs, all the limestone veins of the region were hollowed out by groundwaters, so that the mountains and the foothills and the plains below them were a veritable network of connected caves and galleries. Many graphic sculptures told of explorations deep underground and of the final discovery of the Stygian sunless sea that lurked at Earth's bowels. 
This vast nighted gulf had undoubtedly been worn by the great river which flowed down from the nameless and horrible westward mountains, and which had formerly turned at the base of the Old One's range and flowed beside the chain to the Indian Ocean, between Bud and Tottenlands, on Wilkes' coastline. Little by little it had eaten away at the limestone hill base, and its turning till at last its sapping currents reached the caverns of the groundwaters, and joined them in digging a deeper abyss. Finally its whole bulk emptied into the hollow hills, and left the old bed toward the ocean dry. Much of the later city, as we now found it, had been built over that former bed. The old ones understanding what it had happened and exercising their always keen artistic sense had carved into ornate pylons those headland of the foothills where the great stream began its descent into eternal darkness. This river, once crossed by scores of noble stone bridges, was plainly the one whose extinct course we had seen in our aeroplane survey. Its position in different carvings of the city helped us to orient ourselves to the scene, as it had been at various stages of the region's age-long aeon-dead history, so that we were able to sketch a hasty but careful map of the salient features, squares, important buildings, and the like for guidance in further explorations. We could soon reconstruct in fancy the whole stupendous thing as it was a million or ten million or fifty million years ago, for the sculptures told us exactly what the buildings and mountains and squares and suburbs and landscape setting and luxuriant tertiary vegetation had looked like. It must have had a marvelous and mystic beauty. As I thought of it, I almost forgot the clammy sense of sinister oppression which which the city's inhuman age and massiveness and deadness and remoteness and glacial twilight had choked and weighed on my spirit. Yet, according to certain carvings, the denizens of the city had themselves known the clutch of oppressive terror, for there was a somber and recurrent type of scene in which old ones were shewn in the act of recoiling affrightedly from some object never allowed to appear in the design, found in the great river and indicated as having been washed down through waving, vine-draped, sisad forests from whose horrible westward mountains. It was only in one late-built house that the decadent carvings that we obtained any foreshadowing of the final calamity leading to the city's destruction. Undoubtedly, there must have been many sculptures of the same age elsewhere, even allowing for the slackened energies and aspirations of a stressful and uncertain period. Indeed, very certain evidence of the existence of others came to us shortly afterwards. But this was the first and only set we directly encountered. We meant to look farther on, but, as I have said, immediate conditions dictated another present objective. There would, though, have been limit for all hope of a long future occupancy of the place had perished among the old ones. There could not but have been a complete cessation of mural decoration. The ultimate blow, of course, was the coming of the great cold, which held most of the earth in thrall, and which has never departed from the ill-fated poles. The great cold that, at the world's other extremity, put an end to the fabled lands of Lamar and Hyperborea. Just when this tendency began in the Antarctic, it would be hard to say in terms of exact years. 
Nowadays, we set the beginning of the general glacial period at a distance of about 500,000 years from the present. But at the poles, the terrible scourge must have commenced much earlier. All quantitative estimates are partially guesswork, but it's quite likely that the decadent sculptures were made considerably less than a million years ago, and that the actual desertion of the city was complete long before the conventional openings of the Pleistocene. 500,000 years ago, as reckoned in terms of the Earth's whole surface. In the decadent sculptures, there were signs of thinner vegetation everywhere, and of a decreased country life on the part of the old ones. Heating devices were shewn in the houses, and winter travelers were represented as muffled in protective fabrics. When we saw a series of cartouches, the continuous band arrangement, being frequently interrupted by these late carvings, depicted a constantly growing migration to the nearest refuge of greater warmth. Some fleeing to the cities under the sea, off the faraway coast, and some clambering down through networks of limestone caverns in the hollow hills to the neighboring black abyss of subterranean waters. In the end, it seems to have been the neighboring abyss which received the greatest colonization. This was partly due, no doubt, to the traditional sacredness of this special region, but may have been more conclusively determined by the opportunities it gave for continuing the use of the great temples in the Honeycomb Mountains, and for retaining the vast land city as a place of summer residence and the base of communication with various mines. The linkage of old and new abodes was made more effective by means of several gratings and improvements along the connecting routes, including the chiseling of numerous direct tunnels from the ancient metropolis to the Black Abyss, sharply downpointing tunnels whose mouths were carefully drew. According to our most thoughtful estimates, on the guide map we were compiling. It was obvious that at least two of these tunnels lay within a reasonable exploring distance of where we were, both being on the mountainward edge of the city, one less than a quarter mile toward the ancient river course, and the other perhaps twice that distance in the opposite direction. The abyss, it seems, had shelving shores of dry land at certain places, but the old ones built their new city underwater no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. The depth of the hidden sea appears to have been very great, so that the Earth's internal heat could ensure its habitability for an indefinite period. The beings seem to have had no trouble in adapting themselves to part-time and eventually, of course, whole-time residents underwater, since they had never allowed their gill system to atrophy. There were many sculptures which shewed how they had frequently visited their submarine kinsfolk elsewhere, and how they had habitually bathed in the deep bottom of the great river. The darkness of the inner earth could likewise have been no detriment to a race accustomed to long Antarctic nights. Decadent though their style undoubtedly was, these latest carvings had a truly epic quality, where they told of the building of a new city in the cavern sea. The old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rocks from the heart of the Honeycomb Mountains, and employing expert workers from the near submarine city to perform the construction according to the best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture, Shogoth tissue from which to breed stone lifters and subsequent beasts of burden. 
for the cavern city, and other protoplasmic matter to mold into phosphorescent organisms for lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of that Stygian sea, its architecture much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred Shogoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence, and they represented as taking and executing orders with marvelous quickness. They seem converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over the wide range. If poor Lake's dissection had indicated a right, and to work more from the spoken commands from the hypnotic suggestions as in earlier times. They were, however, kept in admirable control. The phosphorescent organisms supplied light with vast effectiveness, and doubtless atoned for the loss of the familiar polar auroras of the outer world night. Art and decoration were pursued, though, of course, in a certain decadence. The old ones seemed to realize this falling off themselves, and in many cases anticipated the policy of Constantine the Great by transplanting especially fine blocks of ancient carving from their land city, just as the emperor, in a similar age of decline, stripped Greece and Asia of their finest art to give his new Byzantine capital greater splendors than his own people could create. That the transfer of sculptured blocks had not been more extensive was doubtless owing to the fact that the land city was not at first wholly abandoned. By the time total abandonment did occur, it was surely must have occurred before the polar Pleistocene and was far advanced. The old ones had perhaps become satisfied with their decadent art, or had ceased to recognize the superior merit of the older carvings. At any rate, the Aeon silent ruins around us had certainly undergone no wholesale sculptural denution, though all the separate statues, like the removables, had been taken away. The decadent cartouches and dados telling this story were, as I have said, the latest we could find in our limited search. They left us with a picture of the old ones, shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city in summer and the sea cavern city in the winter, and sometimes trading with the sea bottom cities off the Antarctic coast. By this time, the ultimate doom of the land city must have been recognized, for the sculpture shewed many signs of the cold's malign encroachments. Vegetation was declining and the terrible snows of the winter no longer melted, completely even in midsummer. The Saurian livestock were nearly all dead, and the mammals were standing it none too well. To keep on with the work of the upper world, it had begun necessary to adapt some of the amorphous, curiously cold-resistant Shogoths to land life a thing the old ones had formerly been reluctant to do. The great river was now lifeless, and the upper sea had lost most of its denizens, except the seals and whales. All the birds had flown away, save for the great grotesque penguins. What had happened afterwards we could only guess. How long had the new sea cavern city survived? Was it still down there, a stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean-bottom cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice cap? Existing geology shews no trace of their presence. Had the frightful Migo been still a menace in the outer land world of the north? Could one be sure 
of what might or might not linger even to this day in the lightless and unplumbed abysses of Earth's deepest waters. Those things had seemingly been able to withstand any amount of pressure, and men of the sea have fished up curious objects at times. And has the killer whale theory really explained the savage and mysterious scars on Antarctic seals noticed in generations ago by Portugrevic? The specimens found by Poor Lake did not enter into these guesses, for their geologic setting proved them to have lived at what must have been a very early date in the land's city history. There were, according to their location, certainly not less than 30 million years old, and were reflected in their day the sea cavern city, and indeed the cavern itself had no existence. They would have remembered an older scene, with lush tertiary vegetation everywhere, a younger land city of flourishing arts around them, and a great river sweeping northward along the base of the mighty mountains toward a faraway tropic ocean. And yet, we could not help but thinking about these specimens, especially about how the eight perfect ones that were missing from Lake's hideously ravaged camp. There was something abnormal about that whole business. The strange things we had tried so hard to lay on somebody's madness. Those frightful graves, the amount and nature of missing material. Gedney, the unearthly toughness of those archaic monsters, and the queer vital freaks the sculptures now shooed the race to have. Danforth and I had seen a good deal in the last few hours, and were prepared to believe and keep silent about many appalling and incredible secrets of primal nature. Chapter 9 I have said that our study of the decadent sculptures brought about a change in our immediate objective. This, of course, had to do with the chiseled avenues to the black inner world, of whose existence we had not known before, but which we were now eager to find and traverse. From the evident scale of the carvings, we deduced that a steeply descending walk of about a mile through either of the neighboring tunnels would bring us to the brink of the dizzy, sunless cliffs above the great abyss, down whose side adequate paths, improved by the old ones, led to the rocky shore of the hidden and nighted ocean. To behold this fabulous gulf in stark reality was a lure which seemed impossible of resistance once we knew of the thing. Yet we realized we must begin the quest at once if we expected to include it in our present flight. It was now 8 p.m., and we had not enough battery replacement to let our torches burn on forever. We had done so much of our studying and copying below the glacial level that our battery supply had at least five hours of nearly continuous use, and despite the special dry cell formula, would obviously be good for only about four more, though only keeping one torch unused, except for especially interesting or difficult places we might manage to eke out a safe margin beyond that. It would not do to be without the light in these cyclopean catacombs. Hence, in order to make the abyss trip, we must give up all further mural deciphering. Of course, we intend to revisit the place for days and perhaps weeks of intensive study and photography. Curiously, having long ago got the better of horror. But just now, we must hasten. Our supply of trailblazing paper was far from unlimited, and we were reluctant to sacrifice spare notebooks or sketching pads to augment it. But we did let one large notebook go. If worse came to worse, we could resort to rock chipping, 
and of course it would be possible, even in case of really lost direction, to work up to full daylight by one channel or another, if granted sufficient time for plentiful trial and error. So, at last, we set off eagerly in the indicated direction of the nearest tunnel. According to the carvings from which we had made our map, the desired tunnel mouth could not be much more than a quarter mile from where we stood. The intervening space shewed solid-looking buildings, quite likely to be penetrable, still at subglacial level. The opening itself would be in the basement, on the angle nearest the foothills, of a vast five-pointed structure of evidently public and perhaps ceremonial nature, which we tried to identify from our aerial survey of the ruins. No such structure came to our minds as we recalled our flight. Hence, we concluded that its upper part had been greatly damaged, or that it had been totally shattered in an ice rift we had noticed. In the latter case, the tunnel would probably turn out to be choked, so that we would have to try the next nearest one, the one less than a mile to the north. The intervening river course prevented our trying of any more southerly tunnels on this trip. And indeed, if both of the neighboring ones were choked, it was doubtful whether our batteries would warrant an attempt on the next northerly one, about a mile beyond our second choice. As we threaded our dim way through the labyrinth with the aid of map and compass, traversing rooms and corridors in every stage of ruin or preservation, clambering up ramps, crossing upper floors and bridges, and clambering down again, encountering choked doorways and piles of debris, Hastening now, went along finely preserved and uncannily immaculate stretches, taking false leads and retracing our way, in such cases removing the blind paper trail we had left, and once in a while striking the bottom of an open shaft through which daylight poured or trickled down, we were repeatedly tantalized by the sculptured walls along our route. Many have told tales of immense historical importance and only the prospect of later visits reconciled us to need of passing them by. As it was, we slowed down once in a while and turned our second torch. If we had more films, we would certainly have paused briefly to photograph certain boss reliefs, but time-consuming hand-copying was clearly out of the question. I come now once more to the place where the temptation to hesitate, or to hint rather than state, is very strong. It is necessary, however, to reveal the rest in order to justify my course in discouraging further exploration. We had wormed our way very close to the computed site of the tunnel's mouth. Having crossed a second-story bridge, what seemed plainly the tip of a pointed wall, and descended to a ruinous corridor, especially rich in decadently elaborate and apparently ritualistic sculptures of lake workmanship, when about 8.30 p.m., Danforth's keen young nostrils gave us the first hint of something unusual. If we had a dog with us, I suppose we would have been warned before. At first we could not precisely say what was wrong with the formerly crystal pure air, but after a few seconds our memories reacted only too definitely. Let me try to state the thing without flinching. There was an odor. That odor was vaguely, subtly, and unmistakably akin to what had nauseated us upon opening the insane grave of the poor, poor lake had dissected. Of course, the revelation was not clearly cut at the time as it is now. There were several conceivable explanations, and we did a good deal of indecisive whispering. 
most important of all, we did not retreat without further investigation. For having come this far, we were loath to be balked by anything short of certain disaster. Anyway, what we must have suspected was altogether too wild to believe. Such things did not happen in any normal world. It was probably sheer irrational instinct, which made us dim our single torch, tempted no longer by the decadent and sinister sculptures that leered menacingly from the oppressive walls, which softened our progress to a cautious tiptoeing and crawling over the increasingly littered floor in heaps of debris. Danforth's eyes as well as nose proved better than mine, for it was likewise he who first noticed the queer aspect of the debris after we had passed many half-choked arches leading to chambers and corridors on the ground level. It did not look quite as it ought after countless thousands of years of desertion. And when we cautiously turned on more lights, we saw that a kind of swath seemed to have been lightly tracked through it. The irregular nature of the litter precluded any definite marks, but in the smoother places there were suggestions of the dragging of heavy objects. Once we thought there was a hint of parallel tracks as if of runners. This was what made us pause again. It was during that pause that we caught, simultaneously this time, the other odor ahead. Paradoxically, it was both less frightful and more frightful odor. Less frightful intrinsically, but infinitely appalling in this place under known circumstances. For the odor was plain and familiar, one of common petrol, everyday gasoline. Our motivation after that is something I will leave to psychologists. We knew now that some terrible extension of the camp horrors must have crawled into this nighted burial place of aeons. Hence, could not doubt any longer the existence of nameless conditions, present or at least recent, just ahead. Yet, in the end, we did let sheer burning curiosity or anxiety or auto-hypnotism or vague thoughts of responsibility towards Gedney or whatnot drive us on. Danforth whispered again of the print he thought he had seen at the alley turning in the ruins above, and of the faint musical piping, potentially of tremendous significance in the light of Lake's dissection report despite its close resemblance to the cave mouth echoes of the windy peaks, which he thought he had shortly afterward half heard from unknown depths below. I, in my turn, whispered of how the camp was left, of what had disappeared, and if the madness of a lone survivor might have conceived the inconceivable. A wild trip across the monstrous mountains, and a descent into the unknown primal masonry. But we could not convince each other, or even ourselves, of anything definite. We had turned off all lights as we stood still, and vaguely noticed that a trace of deeply filtered upper day kept the blackness from being absolute. Having automatically begun to move ahead, we guided ourselves by occasional flashes from our torch. The disturbed debris formed an impression we could not shake off, and the smell of gasoline grew stronger. More and more ruin met our eyes and hampered our feet, until very soon we saw that the forward way was about to cease. We had been all too correct in our pessimistic guess about that rift glimpsed from the air. Our tunnel quest was a blind one, and we were not even going to be able to reach the basement out of which the abyssal-word aperture opened. The torch flashing over the grotesquely carven walls of the block corridor 
in which we stood shewed several doorways in various states of obstruction, and from one of them the gasoline odor, quite smirching that other hint of odor, came with especial distinctness. As we looked more steadily, we saw that beyond a doubt there had been a slight and recent clearing way of debris from that particular opening. Whatever the lurking horror might be, we believed the direct avenue toward it was now plainly manifest. I do not think anyone will wonder that we waited with an appreciable time before making any further motion. And yet, when we did venture inside that black arch, our first impression was one of anticlimax. For amidst the littered expanse of that sculptured crypt, a perfect cube with sides of about 20 feet, there remained no recent object of instantly discernible size, so that we looked instinctively, though in vain, for a farther doorway. In another moment, however, Danforth's sharp vision had desired a place where the floor debris had been disturbed, and we turned on both torches full strength, though what we saw in that light was actually simple and trifling. I am nonetheless reluctant to tell of it because of what it implied. It was a rough leveling of debris upon which several small objects lay, carelessly scattered, and at one corner of which a considerable amount of gasoline must have been spilled, lightly enough to leave a strong odor, even at this extreme super-plateau altitude. In other words, it cannot be other than a sort of camp, a camp made by questing beings who, like us, had been turned back by the unexpectedly choked way to the abyss. Let me be plain, the scattered objects were, so far as substance was concerned, all from Lake's camp, and consisted of tin cans, clearly opened as those we had seen at that ravaged place, many spent matches, three illustrated books more or less curiously smudged, an empty ink bottle with its pictorial and instructional carton, a broken fountain pen, some oddly snipped fragments of fur and tent cloth, a used electric battery with circular of directions, a folder that came with our type of tent heater, and a sprinkling of crumpled papers. It was all bad enough, but when we smoothed out the papers and looked at what was on them, we felt we had come to the worse. We had found certain, inexplicably blotted papers at the camp which might have prepared us, Yet the effect of the sight down here, in the pre-human vaults of a nightmare city, was almost too much to bear. A mad Gedney might have made the groups of dots in imitation of those found on the greenish soapstones, just as the dots on those insane five-pointed grave mounds might have been made. And he might conceivably have prepared rough hasty sketches, varying in their accuracy or lack of it which outlined the neighboring parts of the city and traced the way from a circularly represented place outside our previous route, a place we identified as a great cylindrical tower in the carvings and as a vast circular gulf glimpsed in our aerial survey. To the present five-pointed structure and the tunnel mouth therein, he might, I repeat, have prepared such sketches for those before us quite obviously compiled as our own had been from late sculptures somewhere in the glacial labyrinth, though not from the ones which we had seen and used. But what this art-blind bungler could never have done was to execute those sketches in a strange and assured technique, perhaps superior 
despite haste and carelessness, to any of the decadent carvings from which they were taken. The characteristic and unmistakable technique of the old ones themselves in the dead city's heyday. There are those who will say Danforth and I were utterly mad not to flee for our lives after that, since our conclusions were now, notwithstanding their wildness, completely fixed and of a nature I need not even mention to those who have read my account as far as this. Perhaps we were mad. For have I not said those horrible peaks were mountains of madness? But I think I can detect something of the same spirit, albeit in a less extreme form, in the men who stalk deadly beasts through African jungles to photograph them or study their habits. Half paralyzed with terror, though we were, there was nevertheless fanned with us a blazing flame of awe and curiosity which triumphed in the end. Of course we did not mean to face that or those which we knew had been there, but we felt that they must be gone by now. They would by this time have found the other neighboring entrance to the abyss, and have passed within to whatever night-black fragment of the past might await them in the ultimate gulf. The ultimate gulf they had never seen, or if that entrance too was blocked, they would have gone to the north seeking another. They were, we remembered, partly independent of light. Looking back to that moment, I can scarcely recall just what precise form our new emotions took, just what change of immediate objective it was so sharpened our sense of expectancy. We certainly did not mean to face what we feared, yet I will not deny that we have had a lurking unconscious wish to spy certain things from some hidden vantage point. Probably we had not given up our zeal to glimpse the abyss itself, Though there was imposed a new goal in the form of that great circular place shewn on the crumpled sketches we had found, we had at once recognized it as a monstrous cylindrical tower figuring in the very earliest carvings, but appearing only as a prodigious round aperture from above. Something about the impressiveness of its rendering, even in these hasty diagrams, made us think that its subglacial levels must still form a feature of peculiar importance. Perhaps it embodied architectural marvels as yet unencountered by us. It was certainly of incredible age, according to the sculptures in which it figured, being indeed among the first things built in the city. Its carvings, if preserved, could not but be highly significant. Moreover, it might form a good present link with the upper world, a shorter route than the one we were so carefully blazing, and probably that by which those others had descended. At any rate, the thing we did was to study the terrible sketches, which quite perfectly confirmed our own, and start back over the indicated course to the circular place. The course which our nameless predecessors must have traversed twice before us. The other neighboring gate to the abyss would lie beyond that. We need not speak of our journey, during which we continued to leave an economical trail of paper, for it was precisely the same kind as that by which we had reached the cul-de-sac, except that it tended to adhere more closely to the ground level than even descend to basement corridors. Even now and then, we could trace certain disturbing marks in the debris, or litter underfoot, and after we had passed outside the radius of the gasoline scent, we were again faintly conscious, spasmodically, of that more hideous and more persistent scent. After
after the way had branched from the former course, we sometimes gave the rays of our single torch a furtive sweep along the walls, noting in almost every case a well-nigh omnipresent sculptures, which indeed seemed to have formed a main aesthetic outlet for the old ones. About 9.30pm while traversing a vaulted corridor, whose increasingly glaciated floor seemed to somewhat below the ground level, and whose roof grew lower as we advanced, we began to see a strong daylight ahead, and were able to turn off our torch. It appeared that we were coming to the vast circular place, and that our distance from the upper air could not be very great. The corridor ended in an arch surprisingly low for these megalithic ruins, but we could see much through it, even before we emerged. Beyond there stretched a prodigious round space, fully 200 feet in diameter, strewn with debris and containing many choked archways corresponding to the one we were about to cross. The walls were, in available spaces, boldly sculptured into a spiral band of heroic proportions, and displayed splendor far beyond anything we had encountered before. The littered floor was quite heavily glaciated, and we fancied that the true bottom lay at considerably lower depth. But the salient object of the place was the titanic stone ramp, which, eluding the archways by a sharp turn outward to the open floor, wound spirally up to the stupendous cylindrical wall, like an inside counterpart of those climbing outside the monstrous towers or ziggurats of antique Babylon. Only the rapidity of our flight and the perspective, which confounded the descent with the tower's inner wall, had prevented our noticing this feature from the air, and thus caused us to seek another avenue to the subglacial level. Pabodi might have been able to tell what sort of engineering held it in place, but Danforth and I can merely admire and marvel. We could see mighty stone corbels and pillars here and there, but what we saw seemed inadequate to the function performed. The thing was excellently preserved up to the present top of the tower, a highly remarkable circumstance in view of its exposure, and its shelter had done much to protect the bizarre and disturbing cosmic sculptures on the walls. As we stepped out into the awesome half-daylight of this monstrous cylinder bottom, 50 million years old, and without a doubt the most primally ancient structure ever to meet our eyes. We saw that the ramp traverse size stretched dizzily up to a height of fully 60 feet. This, we recalled from our aerial survey, meant an outside glaciation of 40 feet, since the yawning gulf we had seen from the plane had been at the top of an approximately 20-foot mound of crumbled masonry. Somewhat sheltered for three-fourths of the circumference by the massive curling walls of a line of higher ruins. According to the sculptures, the original tower had stood in the center of an immense circular plaza, and had been perhaps 500 or 600 feet high, with tiers of horizontal discs near the top, and a row of needle-like spires along the upper rim. Most of the masonry had obviously toppled outward rather than inward, a fortunate happening since otherwise the ramp might have been shattered and the whole interior choked. As it was, the ramp shooed sad battering, whilst the choking was such that way that the archways at the bottom seemed to have been recently half cleared. It took us only a moment to conclude that this was indeed the route by which those others had descended. 
and that this would be the logical route for our own ascent. Despite the long trail of paper we had left elsewhere, the tower's mouth was no farther from the foothills, and our waiting plane then was the great terrace building we had entered, and any farther subglacial exploration we might take on this trip would lie in this general region. Oddly, we were still thinking about possible later trips, even after all we had seen and guessed. Then, as we picked our way cautiously over the debris of the great floor, there came a sight which, for the time, excluded all other matters. It was the neatly huddled array of three sledges in that farther angle of the ramp's lower and outward projecting course, which had hitherto been screened from our view. There they were, the three sledges missing from Lake's camp, shaken by a hard usage, which must have included forcible dragging along great reaches of snowless masonry and debris, as well as much hand portage over utterly unnavigable places. They were carefully and intelligently packed and strapped, and contained things memorably familiar enough. The gasoline stove, fuel cans, instrument cases, provision tins, tarpaulins obviously bulging with books and some bulging with less obvious contents, everything derived from Lake's equipment. After what we had found in that other room, we were in measure prepared for this encounter. The really great shock came when we stepped over and undid one tarpaulin whose outlines had peculiarly disquieted us. It seemed that others as well as Lake had been interested in collecting typical specimens, for there was two here both stiffly frozen, perfectly preserved, patched with adhesive plaster where some wounds around the neck had occurred, and wrapped with patient care to prevent further damage. They were the bodies of young Gedney and the missing dog.